Welcome to the Branches podcast. Branches is a community of faith, hope and love in the South Orange County. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about our faith or our community, visit our website at branchesoc.com. Holding our questions for this series of Lent, not discarding them, but holding them in order that we might take some questions from the Scripture and from Jesus. So, we're going to start with a story this morning that comes right out of the Scripture in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. This is a story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's found in every gospel, actually. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's one of the few stories that's in all four gospels. And I'm going to read it to you. So, settle in. I always have to tell people how long it's going to take. It probably could take like two minutes <laughs> to read this story. Um, so you don't lose focus. Beginning in verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So he had just sent them out, and they're back. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest, is what Jesus says. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, like the wilderness. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So if you've been to the Sea of Galilee, you can see like kind of around it and across it. And so people saw them get in the boat and then you're basically watching them head away. And you're like, where are they going to end up? And so everybody kind of is watching and they're all scurrying to get to where they land and they actually beat them there to this wilderness place. This is the scene that's happening. So it says... Uh, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, so he's like, let's get away, you guys. Let's just get some solitude, some time to ourselves so we can just eat even. And they get there, and there's, you know, 5,000-plus people there. And he sees this large crowd, and it says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him. Hey, this is a remote place, they said. And it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to a surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So it's like we're way out in like El Toro Canyon somewhere like at the top of Saddleback and we need to get people down to McDonald's or somewhere like to eat because we're in this remote place. It's late. They're getting hungry. And Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And in some translations, there's like an exclamation point. There, I don't know if you're, if you're reading, but in some of them, it's like, you, get, you feed them. <laughs> He's like, kind of like, I don't know, I, know, I just don't know what his, he was thinking in that moment, but it was like, you feed them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than a year and a half, like a half a year's wages. And in the scripture, it says 200 denarii, which is basically 200 days wages. That would take that much, 200 days wages. Are we just go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Now, there isn't, from what I read in the scripture, like sarcasm that's like just there, like, oh, and sarcastically he said, are we like supposed to give them, like go buy bread for 200 days? Like, is that what we're going to do? By, by 20, like if you make $100 a day, that's $20,000, right? $20,000. That's a lot of money. Are we supposed to spend 20 grand on bread? But the thing is, is they don't go on to say, we don't have that. <laughs> we don't have the 20 grand. 
they, they're asking, like, should we go do this? Which makes me wonder, did they have 20 grand at their disposal to go buy for them? So he's asking, like, a legitimate question, like, should we go buy them? That's a lot of money, maybe. They don't even say that. It's, they do say it's a lot of money. Anyway, I just think that's interesting. Jesus is rolling with some, some deep pockets. <laughs> this is what Jesus says, and this is our question. How many loaves do you have? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. So that's the story. This would be like a little loaf right here. It's a bagel. But they weren't big loaves, so they're like these little tiny loaves of bread. They have five of these, and they have two fish, which were not large fish. If they were the Sea of Galilee fish, some of them can get kind of big, but it's not enough to really feed the front row. And so they've got 5,000 people, five of these little loaves of bread and two fish. And what I've always read this story is Jesus fed a whole bunch of people on a little bit of food, right? Uh, But I think there's a lot more going on in this story, and that's what we're going to look at. And the question we'll keep coming back to is, how many loaves do you have? Now, a little story. Back in 2003, some dear friends of mine, Giovanni and Hilary Triseri, that you most likely don't know, but they're dear friends of mine. They were living in Washington, D.C. at the time, as was I, and they had just gotten married, and they were going on their honeymoon. And their honeymoon was an all-inclusive vacation at a resort in Jamaica, okay? Now, when you live in D.C., Jamaica sounds pretty nice, and an all-inclusive resort sounds pretty nice, too. And so they go, and you, you know, some of you have had a, a honeymoon, some of you are envisioning what it might be like someday. Day one of the honeymoon, Hillary gets really sick, starts throwing up repeatedly, again and again. And they're thinking, well, she just must have ate something bad, I, you know, she, she got some kind of stomach bug or something. But then it just continues and continues and continues, and she's thrown up everything that she has, and now she's just throwing, she can't keep down water, she can't keep down anything. And they go to the doctor, and they're like, yeah, I think you probably just got a stomach virus or something. And the whole vacation was her laying in her bed and just miserable, sick. No snorkeling, no laying on the beach, no, none of the fun stuff you think of on your honeymoon. And they come back, and they, she's still not well, so they take her to the hospital, and they say, oh, my goodness, it's a miracle you're alive. Because day one of her honeymoon, her appendix ruptured, ruptured, which is a life-threatening issue, right? So for the next month, she's in the ICU. She goes from her honeymoon to the ICU, and Giovanni, my friend, is, is pretty much living in a chair, one of those chairs that kind of folds out into a bed, living in a chair with his 
bride, his brand new bride, for a month. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not quite how I envision my honeymoon or my first year, month of marriage. She ends up living, making a full recovery. Thank the Lord. We prayed for her and prayed for her. Uh, and we, a few of us just had this thought, like, <laughs> they need a do-over, right? That couple needs a do-over. And she, she's at this time working as an executive assistant for IJM, which is a great organization, but was just a startup back then. And he was working as kind of a missionary in, in D.C. And so I, I just started asking people, telling the story, what do you have? Would you want to give to this? And we were able to raise enough money to send them on a second honeymoon for two weeks at an all-inclusive resort in Costa Rica, which was pretty awesome. And of course, that need isn't like a basic need like food or water, but it's amazing what can happen when everyone brings what they have to the table, right? Does that make sense? Now, what you can see here is like these principles of Jesus of like, how many loaves do you have? Bringing what you have and then seeing what might happen when you bring things to the table. Uh, Because in the kingdom, the kingdom of God that Jesus is always talking about, things work a little differently. Things work differently in the kingdom. The economy of God's kingdom is different where you have five loaves and two fish somehow ends up as 12 basketfuls left over, right? It just works differently. So I want to look at this story again with just like some different eyes than I've normally looked at it because I normally kind of saw it as like this magic trick sort of thing where he had the five loaves and the two fish and even in movies I would see like a basket being raised up to the heavens and then it would come down and it was like full of bread and like if you're a Harry Potter fan, it's like Hermione's purse. It just keeps pulling out more stuff. It's like there's this never-ending, like there's a, there's a bottom to it, but then there's just more bread in there. And so that's how I've kind of always envisioned it. And I think that's wonderful if that's it, but I want to look at it maybe just a different idea of what might have happened here. And so what I'm going to do for you is take you on a brief history of the Jewish people. <laughs> super brief, super easy to condense this, no problem. Uh, brief history of the Jewish people in order to talk about what we're supposed to do with what we've been given, okay? And then I want to talk about what happens when you don't give what you've been given. And then I'll close by talking about what we are to give and who we're to give it to. And remember, the question is, how many loaves do you have? So, a little bit of history. We're going to go into the book of Exodus, and I've put some of these on slides so you don't have to turn with me because we're going to do a lot of scripture this morning. Now, Exodus chapter 3, the Exodus is about the people of God being exiting Egypt. They've been in slavery. If you need like a real good background on this, you can watch The Prince of Egypt. It's a beautiful uh, animation film by Disney. Uh, So, then the Lord told him, and he's talking to Moses, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians have abused them. Okay? Now, just staying on that one for a moment, the Israelites are in Egypt, and what are they doing? They're making bricks. They are building an empire for the Egyptians, right? This is what they're spending their time, straw, clay, building 
bricks. They're, stand, they're slaves, and they're just making fortresses and palaces. And what they'd be doing as good, as good Jews, they would be telling stories. They're storytellers. So they're telling stories of, hey, you know what happens when you spend a lot of time making bricks? It's part of our history too, son. You know, this is how we got here. Because back in Genesis 11, you'll read the story of Babylon when they tried to make a tower to get to God, right? They wanted to assert themselves, so they're making bricks, making bricks. And what happens? Disaster. They end up in slavery, making bricks again, but for somebody else's empire, okay? That's what they're doing. Brick by brick, God hears their cry because God hears the cry of the oppressed, okay? And just like Jesus had compassion on these people in the wilderness, God has compassion on his people in Egypt, okay? They're in exile. Now, this Exodus story is about a people being rescued from slavery, right? If you've watched The Prince of Egypt, if you've read the whole story, if you've heard the Exodus story, it's about people being rescued from slavery. It's about liberation, right? God rescues them from Egypt. If you don't know that story, please read it. But you know what he does? He takes them into the wilderness and he does this. He talks to them. He speaks to them. He meets with them. And so then you can read in Exodus chapter 19, just a couple of verses. He's saying, now if you'll obey me and keep my commandment, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples of the earth. For all the earth belongs to me. This is the Lord speaking. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'll come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so that the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. Then they will always trust you, because Moses has this, like, insecurity issues. And so he's like, ah, they're not going to listen to me. He says, I'll come and talk to you in front of them. And then Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. This is amazing. This has, like, not happened since the Garden of Eden, where God just comes and talks to a whole group of people. This is pretty amazing. God is present and he's speaking to his people. And where is this happening? In the wilderness. So the word of God is coming to the people in the wilderness. You follow that? The word of God coming to the people in the wilderness. And verse 19, as the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God thundered his reply. So God is speaking to his people in the wilderness. The word of God coming to them in the wilderness. Now eventually, God leads them to Jerusalem, this land of milk and honey. And all these great things. And they've asked for a king. So they bring in King Saul. And then King David follows after him. And he kind of secures the borders of Jerusalem. And then Solomon, his son, becomes king. You guys have heard of King Solomon maybe? Uh, He's wise beyond all the others and wealthy beyond all the other kings. And Solomon, while he's king, gets a visit from the Queen of Sheba. Okay? And this Queen of Sheba visits him, and she says this, and we'll look at it in uh, 1 Kings 10.9. She says, Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Solomon, God has put you here to maintain justice and righteousness. You have been given wisdom and wealth beyond all others to maintain justice and righteousness. She doesn't say that he does that, 
but only that God must have placed him there for that reason. And Solomon can go one of two ways, right? You can use your wealth, your wisdom, your power for justice and righteousness, or, and you could turn a, a deaf ear to the cry of the oppressed. And let's just look back, because I want to go back a little bit. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 15, just to see what this story is about, right? Here is the account of the forced labor of King Solomon, King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palaces, the terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Okay. What's another word for forced labor? Anyone? Anyone? Slavery. Slavery. Right? Here is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon conscripted to build the walls of Jerusalem, his own palaces, the temple, and Megiddo, Hazor, and Gezer. Now, Megiddo, Hazor, and Gezer, they just happen to be these strategic military fortresses. Okay? So, now the Israelites are in Jerusalem, and what are they doing? Making bricks again. Here we are again. We've been brought out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, and here we are in Jerusalem in our land of milk and honey, and we're making bricks again. Forced labor. Solomon, in all, for all intents and purposes, is the new Pharaoh. Jerusalem is the new Egypt. I think this is ridiculous. Solomon isn't maintaining justice and righteousness. He's perpetuating the exact same injustice that God just liberated them from. Hey, I know. I really want to build a temple to our God. What should I do? I know. I'll, I'll enslave my own people and have them build it. I'll enslave the people that God, you know, to build this temple to the God that sets the slaves free. How could we really honor this God who sets slaves free? Let's enslave people and build them a temple. What? Like, it is so backwards. This is just human thinking, right? What? It doesn't make any sense. And then what happens? Let's read 1 Kings 10, 26 through 29. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities, which were Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. And also with him in Jerusalem, the king made silver as common, as, as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from, from Kew at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. Now, Let's call this what it is. If you're not getting this, sometimes it's kind of weird. Chariots and horses are generally used for war. War. 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses. Solomon has an import-export business of war machines going. Solomon is an arms dealer. That's what he is. He's an arms dealer. Just call it what it is. So some, some people will say, this is arms dealing. He's used slaves to build a, a temple to the God who sets the slaves free, and now he's in arms dealing. 
He has all the wisdom and all the wealth that anyone could ever want. Is that maintaining justice and righteousness? Is that hearing the cry of the oppressed? Is that looking out for the widow and the orphan and the foreigner? No. And then you read right after that in verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 3. He had 700 wives of royal birth, 700 princesses in some, some translations, and 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. They turned his heart away from God. 700 wives. Who's paying for that? <laughs> Maybe there weren't any poor, destitute people because they were all married to him. I have no idea. <laughs> Solomon, the new pharaoh, the man with more money, more wisdom, more wealth, more resources than any other king in human history, used it to build a temple for a god who set slaves free, using slaves, build military outpost to be an arms dealer, pay for houses, terraces, chariots, women, concubines. <laughs> Jerusalem is the new Egypt. And their people are in exile in their own land. And not just in their own land, but in their hearts. You come from a place where you're to pass on the blessings of God to others to a place where you're marginalizing and exploiting others and being marginalized and exploited yourself. Now let's move forward in the story to our passage where Jesus feeds the 5,000. The people of Israel are living under Roman occupation. They are a bit oppressed. The religious leaders are corrupt. They're judgmental. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. You look real nice on the outside, but you're inside you're full of dead bones and death. And he gets on the tax collectors for being greedy. You have all sorts of people that are following around listening, Jesus, listening to Jesus. And this is what happens. The word of God comes to the people in the wilderness. Remind you of anything? They're hungry. Now in the wilderness travels in the book of Exodus, in chapter 16, verse 4, you read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. And each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. I'm going to rain down bread from heaven for you. This is, what Jesus, this is what God does in the wilderness for the Israelites. And then you find this other really interesting passage in John with a connection to that passage. In John chapter 6, verse 33 through 35, it says, For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. They're talking to Jesus. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And John 6.41, you read it right here. The, then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread who comes down from heaven. Maybe I didn't put it on a slide. Sorry about that. Uh, but Jesus says, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. So remember, this is a new exodus. Jesus in the book of John, the first chapter, is often called the Word. If you read John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. So the Word is coming to the people in the wilderness, and he says that I am the bread that comes down from heaven. This whole scene is being recreated in this moment. It's really beautiful. Everybody has left, gone to a remote place, but they're not just in exile 
in their own country. They're in exile in their own hearts. And remember what Jesus asked them, how much do you have? What do you have here? And before I go any further, I want to, I want to just take a little sidestep into a, a passage that I think will be is interesting and kind of fun. This is what happens when you don't bring what you have. Uh, this is in Acts chapter 5, and I'll just read this for you. There's some crazy stories in the Scripture, so I don't know if you've ever found the Bible boring. Just come talk to me, and I'll find you some crazy stories like this one. But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife, Sapphira, or Sapphira, sold some property. So a couple here in Dana Point put their house up, sold it, okay? He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. Ooh. So he took like, you know, 400000 of the 600000 and brought it to the disciples. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished, right? And after selling it, the money was yours also to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. That was brutal. I don't know what happened there, if he had some kind of strange illness and this was like, maybe he ate something bad that day. We just really don't know. It doesn't say that Peter's called down fire from heaven and said, kill him, or he was struck by lightning. It just says he heard it and he died, right there. And everyone who heard about it was terrified. Yeah, I would be too. Want to join our church? <laughs> we'll be taking an offering, and uh, it better be everything that you have, because if it's not, you're going to die. Talk about commitment. Yeah. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. It's like, that was quick. And about three hours later, his wife comes in. So this is quick. Like, the guy's dead, wrap him in a sheet, take him out, bury him. Not knowing what happened, she didn't get the text, Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? <laughs> yes. That was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the, Holy, the Spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Maybe he knew she had some kind of terminal illness. I have no idea, but boom. It says instantly she fell to the floor and died. When the young man came in and saw that she was dead, they were probably like, dude, <laughs> just buried your husband. <sighs> A lot of work today. Uh, they're at the door, and they'll carry you out too. Instantly, yeah. So they, they carried her out and buried her beside her, her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. I do not like that story. I don't. I don't like that story. I don't like it being in there. Just, if that story wasn't in there, it'd be great. But let me submit to you that this kind of attitude does not work in the kingdom of God. It is death. You cannot bring some of what you have and keep some back for yourself. It does not work in the kingdom. Okay? Try to transcend into the principle of that story. That you can't just bring some and hold back some. You have to bring it all. Otherwise, that's not the kingdom. It doesn't work. 
And when you bring what you have to Jesus, he breaks it, he blesses it, and then he hands it back to you to distribute. Okay? He takes the bread, he breaks it, he blesses it, and he hands it back for them to distribute. He has them speculate, or sit down in groups of 50s and 100s, and I can only speculate what happened, because I wasn't there, there's no cameras, we don't know, we weren't sitting there, we can't go back in time to watch this happen, but let me just submit to you an idea of what might have happened. And some scholars think that this might be what happened, which I think is pretty cool. Following Jesus around in all these groups, you would have all sorts of different social classes, just like we do in this room. And in some of these, you would have caravans of very wealthy people that would bring stockpiles of food with them wherever they traveled, okay? These are the people like in the souped-up sprinter van or coachman with towing a trailer that has like its own fridge and tons of food in there. This is like the wealthy, wealthy people that are traveling in style. And then you have the homeless or the very poor, or that are the people that are in extreme poverty that are just going to walk there with everything that they own, right, and no food. You have a whole range from the lowest of the lowest class to the highest of the highest class following. And the rich would have tons of food, and the middle class would have food. Now, we don't know whether or not they had 20000 at their disposal to just go buy food. It just says... They asked, should we go do that? And one speculation is that people, as they saw Jesus break the bread, bless it, and distribute it, that they simply began to bring out what they had. They began to bring out what they had and began to share it, so much so that when all the food came out that was present, right, because if there's 5,000 people and he sends the disciples to say, how much do you guys have? Well, we got like five loaves and two fish. But what does everybody have? How many loaves do you have? One speculation was that as they began to share it in their groups, it was enough for everyone, so much so that there were 12 basketfuls left over. Now, I've done some, a little bit of world hunger research, and I just was asking the question, is there enough food being produced in the world to feed everybody? That was the question I went into my research with. Is there enough food to feed everyone in the world? Because we do have people dying of hunger. Uh, the, the scientists say yes, there's, there's enough food for every person to eat up to 2,700 calories per day. Per day. 2,700 calories per day. That's how much food's being produced, enough for everybody to have 2,700 calories per day. Now the recommended daily allowance is 2,200. So that's 500 calories more than what is necessary to maintain a healthy diet. Wouldn't we call it a miracle if we could end world hunger? It's a miracle. Nobody is dying of starvation. Everybody is well fed. See, the problem is extreme poverty. The problem is geopolitical systems that marginalize and push people to the side, where a minority of people control all the wealth and the resources. Like King Solomon, perhaps, who had all the money and all the resources at his, at his disposal. Now, I believe it is a great miracle, 
if Jesus took five of these and two fish and fed a ton of people. That is a beautiful miracle too. And it doesn't minimize what's happening there. The presence of God has come to be there. But isn't it a great miracle because I think Jesus is calling people to an exile, into an exodus of their hearts, to a renewal of their hearts. Wouldn't it be amazing also if thousands of hearts were transformed to think about what they had differently? 5,000 hearts were transformed that day to think differently about what they could do with what they had. So much so that in the kingdom, there's some left over. Not only are you well fed, but there's some left over. That's God's economy. That's a miracle. I think of like the story of Zacchaeus in, in Luke 19. Jesus has dinner with his tax collector. He says, I'm coming to your house tonight, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He would have been hated by his people because he's a Jew collecting taxes on behalf of the enemy. And, he, and he's so moved by the presence of Jesus or what, something that Jesus says during his time there that he says this. He says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody or wronged anybody, cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. What? That's an, that's an exodus in the heart. That is a transformation of the heart. Now, Jesus could have just as easily come in and said, hey, does anybody have $4? Because I'm going to turn it into 400000 and been like, and somehow kept that $4, just kept making it rain. Right? All day long. Started with four, turned into 400,000. Wouldn't it be amazing, wouldn't it be amazing though if you walked in and, and said, I have four dollars, who has four dollars? And he took it and he handed it out. And then people's hearts began to change and they took what they had and they gave, the one that had two gave to the one that had none. That's the kingdom. That's a transformation. That's a miracle. That's a transformation of the heart. Not just not just a cool magic trick, which is cool. But this, we're talking about the transformation of hearts here. You know what Jesus says? He says, salvation has come to this house today. That's what he says in response to what Zacchaeus does. Salvation has come to this house today. What must you do to be saved? Apparently, you've got to give away half your possessions and then pay back four times the amount of anybody you cheated. I've always been told you'd pray a prayer to ask Jesus into your heart. Salvation is so much bigger than our view of what we think it is. In God's kingdom, everyone has enough and there's some left over. But you have to bring what you have to Jesus. In the Matthew account of the feeding of the 5,000, which we didn't read, he says, what do you guys have? And they said, we have this, five loaves and two fish. And he says this very key phrase. He says, bring it to me. Bring it to me. What do you, how many loaves do you have? Bring it to me. Bring everything you have to him. Let him break it, which sometimes can be very painful. Let him bless it, and he will give it back to you to distribute. It's like love, right? How am I supposed to love everybody? Ah. <sighs> I barely love like my family and my friends, and I don't even know some of you guys, and how do I love you? And my love just, just goes down. You take what little bit of love that you have and you bring it to him and he breaks it 
and he blesses it, and he hands it back to you to distribute, and then there's enough left over. For the guy that's going to cut me off on my way home, for the person that's driving too slow and can't decide if they want to turn there or there, or they're going to try and do a U-turn. You've been, behind, you've been behind that person going back to the light. They don't know where they are. They're in the harbor. You've got to have enough left, left over for them. The way of Jesus is a way of surrendering everything you have to him. And then there's a le- enough left over. Enough for everyone and some left over. So how many loaves do you have? What is it that you have? Because you're to give it to him. Let him break it. Let him bless it. And let him give it back to you to distribute. And then it becomes enough. It, is, it would be so cool if he did some kind of cool zapping thing with the bread and the fish and it multiplied and it was... I think that is equally amazing display of his power and glory. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an understanding that God takes care of his people. I also think it would be really cool if it was a display of transformed hearts. Either way, the miracle isn't minimized. Don't get hung up on that. You have a life. You have talent. You have energy. You have possessions. You have time. You get to bring that to him. You get to watch him break it, bless it, and redistribute it. What we have here in Jesus is his peop- leading his people out of exile in their own hearts once more. And it's not any longer about owning the land or It's about owning your life. Owning your own life. It's about a way of living that transcends land or circumstance. It transcends it. One person said this, and I'll close with this. He said, Joy and happiness and fulfillment that depend on circumstances is just another form of misery because it can be taken away from you or stolen. This way of living transcends your circumstances, whether you're poor or you're rich in the kingdom. Everyone has enough and there's some left over. How many loaves do you have? Give it to him. And then you get to you get to bless others. You get to maintain justice and righteousness. That's what you get to do. You get to bring about peace. You get to care for the widow and the orphan and the foreigner. You have the opportunity every day. In God's kingdom, there is enough for everyone with much left over. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this story. Thank you for the scriptures, God. We are so grateful for all these stories. Lord, may they lead us out of exile in our own hearts to a place where we see that we have something to bring to the table that can be broken and blessed and and given back. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be transformed, that we'd be challenged by the question of how many loaves do we have and what are we going to do with them? Are we going to bring them to you? Or hold some back, which just doesn't work. 
give us the courage and the strength to bring it all to you. Whatever it is that we have, our time, our treasure, our money, our energy, our passion, our compassion, may we bring it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen.